listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, this morning, I want to continue in our study, uh, this summer-long study that we've been talking about, the pursuit of of wisdom. Last week, we talked about uh, the wisdom of, of the Word of God. And we talked about how in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra stood and he read from God's Word and the people responded. They gathered with a unanimity of mind and purpose. They wanted to hear God speak and that the role of a priest, both then as now, is to point people to the sacrifice, to that work which would close the gap and remove the boundary between God and man. That's what a priest does. And we want to continue on this morning in our study on the pursuit of wisdom, where we're also talking about um, sort of the vision of Bethel. What are we trying to accomplish here? Last week we talked about growing communities. We are to be in this thing together. This morning I want to talk about building leaders. And I want to sort of simplify that down to one key word. And it's sort of a buzzword these days, and I get that, but I want to focus on the idea and the notion of influence. Influence. Merriam-Webster defines influence as the power to change or affect someone or something. And as I was planning and praying and preparing all week long about the idea of influence, like you, I saw and was deeply saddened by the events that have taken place on the East Coast in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I feel I would be very remiss if I did not at least speak to it. But I want to speak to it absolutely not from a political slant or even a moral slant. I want to speak to it from a biblical worldview and a biblical perspective because really what is at issue is influence. What happened in Charlottesville, we didn't get there overnight. Didn't happen in a vacuum. Tensions and hostilities have been brewing for a very, very long time. There are always going to be, there have always been, there will always be until the Lord returns. There will be voices. There will be these people who, who have a tendency to grow in value, in volume, sorry, and capitalize on the fear factor, the uncertainty factor, the doubt factor, what I call the FUD factor, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. They will always capitalize on that in an effort to draw people to themselves, to affirm their own position, and to raise the blood pressure of others. They're using influence, but they are not using it to point people to Christ, to point people to the sacrifice. They're pointing people to all other sorts of quote, solutions, which are never, ever solutions. They're not voices of truth. And I just want to say that that is a singular voice that is not original. There's nothing new under the sun. All of that comes immediately and directly from Genesis 3, in which the deceiver, the enemy, the adversary shows up on the scene and says to man, you are a victim. You're a victim. Someone's taking advantage of you. Someone is holding out on you. And at the same time, you have in yourself your own righteousness. It's the oldest lie in the book. 
that you're a victim, and at the same time, you also possess your own self-righteousness. All that we saw happen with the murder of a person is because that lie propagates that you are a victim and that you possess your own righteousness by who you are, by what you do. And it is literally a lie from the pit of hell. So I want to say this morning, it is diametrically opposed and against the gospel. I want to say it this way. An identity built on anything other than the finished work of God in Christ will drive you to fear and then to hate. Always. An identity built on anything other than the finished work of God in Christ will drive you to fear and then hate. Always. If your identity is built on wealth, riches, money, then you will always despise those who have less than you. You will always be envious of those who have more. Your identity is built on very shaky ground indeed. If your identity is built on success or strength, then you will always disdain those whom you perceive to be weaker or failing. And you will always revile those whom you perceive to be stronger than you. If your identity is built on your education or your accomplishment or your experience, you will look down on anyone who is less ed- educated, and then you will always stretch your soul to try to catch up to those who you believe have more accomplishment or education or experience. Or if your nationality is, or if your identity is built on nationality or race or country of origin, then you will revile anyone who isn't like you. The grammar of Ephesians chapter 2 is really startling. It is this precise thing that the Apostle Paul was writing into the church at Ephesus. One of the great grand heresies of the church in Ephesus was racism. It was hatred and fear and uncertainty and doubt of one group to another. And so Paul writes deeply, dramatically, that the dividing wall has been obliterated by the death of the Son of God on the cross. And this is the way of the world left to its own device and its own depravity, to separate and to isolate. There are all sorts of clever secular attempts to try to address these problems, but the underlying issue is sin. There's a lot of great ideas, a lot of great programs, a lot of great notions, but the problem is sin. None of those efforts ever address the problem of sin. It is a God-sized problem. What's needed, of course, is the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another, and for people in this world to use their influence to proclaim the good news that it is finished. So what is God's plan for a church like Bethel Bible Church in the downtown campus that exists here in the center of the city at the crossroads of culture? What is God's plan for us? I want to speak very specifically to influence, and so I'm going to invite you to turn in with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to say this morning that What we see all throughout both testaments of Scripture is that God uses people to reach people. He doesn't need people to reach people, but he delights and he desires to use people to reach people. So I'm going to read 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll unpack it a little bit, and then we'll try to apply it very briefly. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Now, when Paul says that, this means most likely that this is already a known expression that was being used repeatedly in the early church. By the time Paul writes this, there is already some sort of repetition of this idea, of this notion being propagated in the church. And so Paul just writes it down. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I love that verse. They must hold the mystery of the faith. Not the secret, the mystery, that which had been hidden but has now been unveiled by God to those who believe. They hold that mystery with a clear conscience, verse 9. Verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Not sinless, blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified. Now I have to stop and make a quick comment on that. That translation is questionable. We don't know for sure. It could mean their wives or it could mean the deaconesses. The female deacons, some of you just made a little fist in your chair. Relax. I'm not making policy on that. I'm just saying the grammar is ambiguous. It could be wives. It could be female deacons. Likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Now, let me set the stage a little bit. This is Ephesus. So much of our New Testament centers around this little area on the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey. It's called Ephesus. Ephesus is the church that Paul plants, spends three years there himself teaching. Ephesus is the place where John the Apostle, John the Revelator goes, where he very likely brings Mary, mother of Jesus, prior to her death, where at the time of this writing, Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and very likely John is pastor emeritus. He's an old man. He's gone to exile on Patmos. At the end of his exile, he doesn't die there. They bring him back, and at the age of 100 plus, they are carrying John in as often as he is able to preach sitting on a chair. This Ephesus, it is the governmental, cultural, economic hub of the Eastern Roman Empire. It's where everything went down. It is the religious hub of the Eastern Roman Empire, the temple to Diana, 
One of the seven wonders of the ancient world is found in Ephesus. Absolutely massive. And inside of that temple was this graphically grotesque statue of Diana made to evoke all sorts of thoughts of fertility that was very likely, according to Acts 19.35, carved from a black meteor that fell out of the sky. That's a weird deal. (laughs) And this place was absolutely throbbing and thriving with economic, governmental, religious fervor. All these different people, these people called the Asiarchs, that were so wealthy, they themselves privately funded the Asian Games, the, the, um, the Turkish equivalent to the Olympics in antiquity. They, they funded that stuff privately. All these military leaders, business leaders, government leaders, religious leaders, and they are all wielding influence. And just about all of it was pointing in a direction that was exactly opposite of the plan and the purpose of God himself. This is Ephesus. And into this context, Paul writes this letter to his protege, Timothy. And it's all about influence. It's all about influence. And everybody, doesn't matter who you are, everybody has some influence. The questions are, Which direction is it pointed in, and how big is that sphere of influence? If you are a believer, then you are a leader. I'm not saying you're a titan of business or a military commander, but if you are a believer, you are a leader. You are an influencer. You might say, I didn't sign up for that. Yes, you did. Let it be heard. Let it be known. Yes, you did. Because Every believer is to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, of which he is the head. He is literally the leader, the head, the king of this organization. It's not a nonprofit organization. It's not a parachurch ministry. It is the bride and the body of Christ, which shall continue for all eternity. If you are a participant in that, that means you are a vassal. You are a member of that kingdom, which shall continue forever and ever and ever. And this is so important because throughout history, the church has always been judged primarily by her leadership. You know this. Every time a celebrity Christian, which I revile that idea, but some speaker, pastor, author, whatever, gains fame and notoriety and means, when that person fails and falls, which happens all too often, It brings reproach upon Jesus himself and upon his church. And by the way, the plan of the enemy is always to discredit and discourage the leaders of the church because it is so damaging, because it works. And I'd be willing to bet that in 100% of the time and the names and the faces that flash through your mind when I talk about a, a, a Christian leader falling with some sort of moral failing, I would be willing to bet that 100% of the time it is because they did not have a layer of accountability and covering. Asking them hard questions, getting right up in their grill and saying, are you lying to me? I will not be your yes man. I want you to tell me the truth because so much is at stake. So I want to talk about this, and I'm going to walk through these passages again very briefly. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, again, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires... Rigatai. This word is interesting. This word aspires. 
it is not the idea of, of a military or governmental or military ambition. It, it has the idea, the word literally means both arms reaching out, like longing, yearning, desiring with deep affection. This is what this word aspire means. It means the same idea that you have that just comes with who you are, I hope, to, des- to, to, to bless, to protect your family. If anyone aspires, has that kind of longing for the church, this reminds me of when I became a father. <laughs> it brought to mind just how ridiculously self-absorbed and selfish I really am. It, re- it required that I suddenly begin to seek the good of another. I wanted the joy of another, another who was very small and was only capable of making things very smelly. I wanted their joy, and they had no capacity whatsoever to repay me. But I wanted their joy. I wanted their happiness. I wanted their good. And it was that affection and that love for them which unleashed me to lay aside my own entitlement. And for the first time in my history, I found little people with whom I was willing to share my nachos. That's a supernatural thing, people. That doesn't just happen. It's the same idea, Paul says, if there's anyone who has that same sense, that burden, that desire, that longing for the church, it is noble. Now, your translation might have a different word. The word is kalos. I like the word noble. I think it's appropriate. Because I think of some of the men and women in this congregation who are people of nobility that I think, man, they have gravity. I walk near them and I just, whoa, I fall in because they're just, they're just, there's a spiritual weight to them. Nobility, kalos, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's fair, it's good, it's lovely. If anyone has that two-armed reach and desire and affection for the church, this is God's plan. This is good. It is lovely. It resembles that which happens in heaven. It's a lovely thing. They aspire to the office of overseer. They desire a noble task. Now, there are three essential titles for a leader in the New Testament. And they don't describe three different people. They describe three different responsibilities. There is overseer, the word episkopos. It literally means to look over, to have oversight, to to look and to see what all is going on. There is the term presbruderos, which usually means an experienced person of maturity. And those terms, presbruderoi, is always in the plural. You'll never see an elder acting alone. This is why we at Bethel, we always believe in a plurality of eldership, a plurality of leadership. It is never an elder that comes to the staff and says, hey, I'm pretty hot and bothered about this. You need to fix it. You don't do that. We say, that's great. I love your, I love your spunk. Let's talk about it at our next elder meeting altogether because that's what we do. We're a plurality of leadership. So there's an episcopos, sometimes referred to as a bishop. Uh, presbuteros, which is an elder, and then there is a pastor. Almost every time, there's 12 times it's used in the New Testament, 11 of those 12, the word is translated as shepherd, and rightly so. One time in Ephesians 4, it is translated as pastor. A shepherd, a pastor is one who feeds God's flock. And these are not three separate offices, by the way. It is one person with three different facets of their experience and their responsibility. 
Well, then Paul's going to walk through and say, if anyone desires that, it's because they have a parental, fatherly affection for the fellowship. It's good. It's right. We have a tendency to sort of try to banty about this false humility in church of, oh, not me. I'm nobody. I, like Moses, I don't talk so pretty. I got a limp. I got a thing. I got a, All of which are complete lies. Paul says it is a good thing to want those things. And then he's going to list out 15 qualifications. Now, my friend Dan Bolin says, mm, I prefer the word qualities. Not prerequisites that you have to have, but these are things that you are. 15 qualities, okay, fine, or qualifications for what it means to be a leader in the church. Now, of those 15, you can really sort of boil them down to four categories. So I'm not going to walk through all 15 items one by one, but just four categories of qualifications or qualities of a leader in the church. The first, the first category is very broad. It's general character. All of the things largely that are itemized. It's very broad and it's very encompassing. It's free from anything reproachable. Anything that could bring about accusation. Things like being a bully. Some of your translations might say pugnacious. Just, this guy's always ready to throw fists. A slander, a gossip, a, a drunk. doesn't say that they can't drink any alcohol. It says they can't be a drunk or addicted to it. Um, a deceiver in their business dealings. All of those things have to do with general character. We don't want people who are intimidators. We, I should tell you, as a plurality of elders and deacons and staff, we are frequently a high-conflict leader, a leadership organization. We get snippy and chippy with one another. Mike and Matt bark at me all the time and tell me all the many, many ways in which I'm not like the person of Jesus Christ. And there's much material there. And they have complete open access and invitation to do so. Similarly, the elders have complete access to correct me, and they have necessarily done so. And I have had to write very long and humbling emails to say, I messed this up, and here's how, and here's why. Thank you for that rebuke. But we have that conflict at the leadership level so that we do not let it seep into the sheep, into our flock, and get distracted with those kinds of things that are not God's plan for his people. But to do that, those leaders have to be people of general character. Second category, while that one is very broad and sort of uh, a wide swath of coverage, the second category is very specific, laser-focused. It is sexual purity. Super important in Scripture. I heard a very well-known celebrity pastor recently say that there is no difference between sexual sin and any other sin, to which I say, please spend some time with the Apostle Paul. He begs to differ. Now, all sin is an affront before a holy God. But the scriptures say that sexual sin is unique. All other sins a person commits outside his body, sexual sin, Paul says, a person commits against his body. There are sins outside the body. There are sins of the body. They are different. Does that mean that one is unforgivable? One's beyond the finished work of Christ on the cross? May it never be said. But that one is a crucial importance, sexual purity. Now, it can be interpreted all different sorts of ways. 
a one-woman man? Does that mean a widower or a divorcee? All those things. That's not what we're going to discuss right now. The, the, the important thrust of what Paul is trying to say is that sexual purity is paramount. A recent celebrity pastor, speaker from Colorado had to step down because uh, it was discovered that he had been having an affair for eight years. And at the time of his discovery, <laughs> he was in the middle of a series on finding worth in your marriage. Someone somewhere failed to ask him hard questions and or that individual surrounded himself with people who were not or who were easily lied to. Sexual purity, according to the New Testament, absolutely matters. One of my heroes in the faith, Tom Nelson, says that one is a landmine. You step on that one, you don't come back from that one. You're not disqualified from the kingdom, but you step on that one, you are disqualified from leadership in an official capacity within the church. Third category is family leadership, gospel influence in the home. It doesn't mean that your children are suddenly Amish and you name them all Old Testament Hebrew names. Come forth, Jedediah. Turn the butter, boy. It, it, does, it doesn't mean that. Yes, they can have iPhones. Yes, they can go to the movies. It doesn't mean that they are perfectly moral or expertly behave. What it means is, is that the gospel is a normatively discussed topic in your home. And when there is sin and failure and error, it is met with the gospel and not with law. You see, so that a child does not grow up to resent the grace of God, but is thirsty and desperate for it. That's what family leadership, that's what gospel influence in the home means. It doesn't mean you have sinless children, for yea, verily, there would be no one in leadership in any church anywhere. But there is an intentional deliberateness to saying we will be a family that discusses openly and regularly the gospel. And then fourth category is able to teach and defend sound doctrine. Elders are to teach sound doctrine, to defend sound doctrine when it is opposed with some new tickling heresy. I've already mentioned this, but 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, likely written to the people in Ephesus. 1st and 2nd Timothy, written to the people in Ephesus. The gospel, I'm sorry, the book of Ephesians, written to the people of Ephesus. Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 2 writes a letter to the people of Ephesus. All sorts of heresies and competing doctrines and teachings were beginning to seep in. And principle among them was behavior modification and the doctrine of good works, against which Paul writes and fights feverishly. Elders are to defend against that ancient satanic heresy of works righteousness. Deacons are to be with clear conscience full of the Spirit, holding the mystery of the faith. So please hear me very carefully, very clearly. It is not that deacons are the junior varsity or are the elders in training or are the second string. Nothing could be further from the truth biblically. It's just that they have slightly different angles of approach in how they serve the body of Christ. Elders lead with their words and doctrine. Deacons lead with their work and their duty. And they are both full of the Spirit that can teach. The greatest sermon in the book of Acts preached by Stephen was a deacon. Full 
of the Spirit, rightly handling and, and disseminating and distributing and dispensing God's Word. Now, I want to say one more time that this letter that Paul writes to Timothy was to Timothy as Paul sits in prison, handing over the reins of leadership to his protege, saying, well, man, this is it. I didn't think it was going to go this way, but here I sit in prison. This is how you must install leadership. But this letter was to have been read aloud in the church so that all the people knew what to expect. All of the people understood what they were to look at these leaders to provide for them. But here's the deal. This is really where I want to spend a little bit of emphasis. Not one of us, not a single one of us meets the requirements of 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. Not a single one of us meets this on our own strength or our own goodness. Not a one. And so, yes, I'm appalled and I am grieved and I am saddened by what took place in Charlottesville, Virginia. And yet, in the darkness of my soul, I have to admit that that same kind of depravity exists in me. We're all made of the same stuff. But by grace, we have been saved. It is a great error to look at that list, to hear that list from 1 Timothy 3 and say, well, yeah, that sounds like it's an awesome deal. I'm going to do that too. I'm going to be like that. I'm going to do all those things. That is great error. That is a failure waiting to happen. You won't make it to Monday and neither will I. In fact, I'm convinced that that is the great satanic ploy, that you can try to do your best on your own strength. Paul's entire point for the book of Galatians is don't. Be. It's not in our goodness or our effort or our strength. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ and his free offer of his righteousness imputed into our account that produces this sort of lifestyle. It's not what people are supposed to do so that they can get some influence. Please hear that. This is not a list of things that you need to do so that we'll notice you and then give you your badge, your members-only jacket, and your free parking spot. None of those things exist, incidentally. Sorry. This is who people are because of how much they love the Lord Jesus, the groom, and his bride, the church, with two arms reaching. The way, the, the way that Christ's sheep are fed is through his word, and that is what his leaders are to be devoted to dispensing. This is about the one that we love and what he has done and how we arrange our lives around the simple yet eternally awesome truth that he is alive. That's the thing. And when we do that, when we do that, we become a person of kingdom influence because of God's glory and grace and power and provision. I always find it fascinating. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul does not have a list of things to do, which sort of offends our Western sensibilities. We want a checklist. He doesn't say, this is the things that you should do. He says, this is the things that you are to be. This is what a person is because of their affection of Jesus and their devotion and dedication to the bride. And so, this is what I will say. We believe that godly influence wields God's word. 
Godly influence wields God's word because it is God's word that changes things. It's not my words, not my rhymes, not my pithy alliterations. It is God's word that changes a human soul. No program, no no activity will ever transform a human heart from death into life, from darkness to light, ever. It is God's word that convicts, that separates joint from marrow. So godly influence wields God's word. And so leadership and influence in this church is about rightly handling God's word and being full of his spirit to lead God's people, which is why we have finally come to this portion of our service where we get to officially install one new elder and four new deacons. And I want to say this, the office of elder and deacon, I hope you've picked up on this by now, it is not an honor given to a person to congratulate them, to promote them, not in the slightest. This office is bestowed upon people in whom we have already observed these qualifications and qualities. And so two weeks ago, we voted to affirm the men who had been nominated to serve as elders and deacons here at Bethel at all three campuses. So today, I want to present these men to you. I want to commission them for service, and I want to pray for them. So I want to invite our newly elected elder and deacons, if they would please, to come forward and stand with me on the platform. And a little bit later, I'll invite our current uh, elders and deacons to come up as well. Jesus taught us how to think about the spirit of true leadership when he said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These men are set aside to provide service, protection, and leadership to us as a church. And so if our new deacon uh, initiates and elder will come forward, if there are any here in the early service, I'm going to ask you six questions. And then I'm going to ask you as a congregation two questions. We've got Jason Mazingo as a deacon, Mark Gilmore as a deacon, Doug Coltman, come on up here, Doug. As elder, Nathan Atkinson as deacon, and Tyler Sullins, unfortunately, could not be with us this morning. He is traveling. I'm going to ask these guys six questions, and then I will ask you two questions. Guys, if you will please respond, if it is so, with I do. We're not getting married. Don't worry. Not yet, anyway. (laughs) Do you affirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God and totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the final and the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely affirm the essential doctrines of Bethel Bible Church? Do Do you promise to submit to your fellow elders and deacons in the Lord? Will you be faithful and diligent to endeavor by the grace of God to love and defend the proclamation of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with humility and strength before this congregation? Are you now willing to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the ministry to God's people, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Bethel Bible Church and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? Then, Doug, I have a specific charge to you as an elder, and my prayer is it would also remind and reaffirm to our existing elders. Doug, I charge you as an elder to guard yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer, to be a shepherd of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. That's from Acts 20, verse 28. 
by word and example, bear up God's people in their pain and weakness. Do I even need to say it? If you know Doug Coltman at all, you know that that's who he is. That's what he does. And celebrate their joys with them. Hold and trust all sensitive matters that are confided to you. Be compassionate, yet firm and consistent in rebuke and discipline. Be prepared to share the gospel with the lost as you grow in your knowledge of the scriptures, which are, 2 Timothy 3, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Doug, pray continually for the church. My charge to you four deacons, Tyler and Absence. I charge you deacons to inspire faithful service in our church, to inspire faithful service, not to do everything yourselves, but to inspire faithful service in our church. Remind us that from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. That's Luke 12, 48. Be compassionate to the needy. Hold and trust all sensitive matters confided to you. Encourage them with words that create hope in their hearts and with deeds that bring joy into their lives. Let your lives be above reproach as you live as examples of Christ Jesus, prepared to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so now, church, family, congregation, I'm going to ask you to participate. I'm going to ask you to stand. I have two questions for you. If you would please answer with, we do and then we will. Do you, the members of Bethel Bible Church, acknowledge and publicly receive these men as elders and deacons as gifts of Christ to this church? Will you love them and pray for them and their families in their ministry? You better, because they need it. It's a hard, hard deal. There are red concentric circles painted all over them now. This is truth. Those of you who are already serving, you have the scar tissue. Will you love them and pray for them and their families in their ministry and work together with them humbly and cheerfully that by the grace of God you may accomplish the mission of the church, giving them all due honor and support in their leadership to which the Lord has called them to the glory and honor of God. Then, congregation, I have a charge for you as well. I charge you as the people of God to receive these men as Christ's gift to our church. Recognize in them the Lord's provision for a healthy congregational life. Hold them in honor. Take their counsel seriously. Respond to them with respect. Accept their help with thanks. Sustain them in prayer and encourage them with your support, especially when they feel the burden of their office. And they will. Acknowledge them as the Lord's servants among you. So now I'm going to ask the existing elders or deacons, or if you've ever been an elder and a deacon at this, at this campus and this congregation, I'm going to ask you to come forward as well and to uh, lay hands on these guys. Torso and up, boys. Torso and up, okay? It's a family show. Hands where I can see them. All high. Lay hands on. We want to pray for these guys. We want to bless them. Please join me as we pray together. Merciful Father, gracious God in heaven, we thank you that you have provided faithful and gifted men to serve as elders and deacons. We have already seen in these men a devotion to your son and to your church. Father, as these men assume their responsibilities, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit, endow them with your wisdom, and grant them strength. Under their guidance, may our church grow in every spiritual grace and faith and in the committed service that proclaims you in the world. Father, help them to perform their duties with enthusiasm and humility. and their work, grant them a sense of sustained awe, which is rooted in daily adoration of you, their Lord. Holy Spirit, keep their eyes tuned and turned to Jesus. 
Through them, may your name be honored and your church be served. Help us, God, as your people, to accept them gladly. Encourage them always and respect them for the sake of your precious Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. Y'all can be seated. I want to ask you as our congregation to remain standing. We'll have a word of benediction. Thanks so much for being with us this morning for this momentous season in the life of our church. It's, uh, it's awe-inspiring to me that God would move as he has in bringing these men to serve, to literally lay down their hearts, their souls, their time, their treasure, and their talent on behalf of this campus. So let me ask this, or offer this word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Now may God our Father, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, you see, he's got the oomph. He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. May he equip you for every good work, and may you be joyous in doing it. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.